You are listening to audio from Summit Community Church. You can join us Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. on our YouTube channel at SCC Morganton. SEC, good to see you. Good to have you with us in God's house to worship our one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. We're in our series called Mark Season 1. Now, the one dictates what? There is more to come. We have three seasons in the Gospel of Mark this particular year as we work through the Gospel of Mark. And I will challenge you with this thought. There is a privilege and an honor to work through a work book of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because here's what happens. When you do that, you get into the flow and the rhythm of the book itself. And as you and I get into the rhythm of the book, we will come across chapters and verses that are a little difficult, that can be convicting, that can be very uncomfortable. Passages that will tend to bother us, will tend to confuse us and tend to convict us, but it is great to work our way through those. This is one of those passages in Mark chapter 3. It can convict It can confuse, it can bother, and it can dig deep, but it's worthy of us digging through it, working through it today in the progression through the Gospel of Mark in season number one. Matt did a wonderful job reading for us today, the verses 20 through 35. And in this passage here, there's two quick things we're going to look at today in this passage. One is a warning, and one is a challenge. In this passage, God, Jesus gives us a warning and a challenge. Now, right out of the gate, the warning is this. Warning is this. Do not reject Jesus to the point of no return. Don't reject Jesus to the point of no return. This warning does take up the bulk of the passage. Jesus' first miracle in the Gospel of Mark was him healing a young man who was possessed by a demon. That miracle set the stage for Jesus being known for casting out demons and healing people who are demon-possessed. The Pharisees jump up, the scribes come up, and they name Jesus, they name here in this passage, and it's a combination of two words. Now look at verse 22. The scribes had come down from Jerusalem, said, he is possessed, and here's the name, by Beelzebul, and he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. Now that name, Beelzebul, was a combination of two Hebrew words. Baal was the name for the pagan god in the Old Testament who was a rival for Jehovah God, the God of Israel. Baal meaning ruler or lord. The second part is Zebul, 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 it means house or dwelling place. So when you put those together, Beelzebul, it means this, the ruler over the house, the ruler over a particular domain. And by this time, it was common to refer to Satan by this particular name. So the scribes, they look at the work of Jesus, and they see it as not being done through the work of God, but they accuse him of doing the work of Satan. Now. There is something we didn't understand right here. Catch this for me. Miracles do not automatically produce faith. That is obvious in the scriptures. Miracles do not automatically produce faith. A lot of times I've heard people say this. Well, I would believe in God if I could just see a miracle. If I could see something happening that my eyes that is unexplainable, then I would believe. I want to go, no, you wouldn't. Jesus prophesied about that. It doesn't happen. We see it evidence in Scripture. The Pharisees, the scribes, could not deny that Jesus performed miracles. They had seen the miracles themselves. 
but they didn't see it. They're pinning eyewitnesses and said, yeah, we saw it. Here's what happened. And it did not produce in them faith. Obvious, right? It certainly was not a lack of faith or evidence that was there. It was simply a lack of willingness. They were not willing. They were not willing to question their rejection, even in the midst of such strong evidence. They were not willing to let go of their preconceived notions and submit to the authority of Jesus. They were not willing to let go of their traditions and their religion so they could respond in faith. That's why Jesus later says in the Gospels, to come to the kingdom of God, you must become like a little child, humbly, willingly, innocently. You have to be honest with yourself and be willing to admit your knowledge is inferior to God's word, and you have to be willing to submit to him. So miracles don't automatically produce faith, even with an abundance of evidence. Now, faith requires a decision to trust in Jesus. Usually there's something deeper in our resistance in faith, to faith in Jesus. It can be that we have questions, questions we don't have answers to or have sufficient answers for. It can be that things we just don't understand. It can be that you've been hurt by Christians or how Christians have responded to others around you. And it can be that you're just simply disappointed with God. But God says, I understand these things, and you must bring them to me in faith, and we will work through this together, me working in your heart and your mind. What we need to see is unbelief is not merely driven by reason. See, unbelief is driven by resistance to the very authority of God. That's where the scribes and Pharisees were in Jesus' day. And if we're not responding, we're pushing back. That pushback is against the authority of Jesus. See, unbelief does not say there's not rational reasons, but it says there's a lot more to it than that. And that's, I really believe that's what Jesus is getting at later in this encounter. Look at verse 23. He says, so he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. And he raises a question out of the gate. He says, how can Satan drive out Satan? He's looking at them and he's letting them know that he knows. You're accusing me of being possessed by Satan himself. And Christ is saying, why would Satan be attacking himself? Why would Satan sabotage his own strategy? Jesus is like, your very accusations just, just make no sense at all. He's saying, this is the most bizarre thing I've ever heard in my life. He's letting them know he's on the same page with them. He knows where they're going. Jesus breaks it down very much further. He references to a person, a, a theme called the strong man. Very critical theme here. Don't you see why? Look at verse 27. Jump down. He said, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Now, nobody goes out and invites a thief to come in and steal in the middle of the night. What would you think about me if I said, I found the most crooked, wicked person on the streets of Burke County who's known to, th to steal and say, hey, Here's my address. Tonight at 11.30 at night, we're all going to be in the bed. I'll cover for you. I have all the windows unlocked, all the doors unlocked, garage door up. Take everything you want. I pretend I don't hear you. And wake up as if I'm surprised in the morning. What would you say about me? Mike, you've lost your mind. Jesus is trying to say, guys, you have lost your mind if you think this is what's happening here. This is not what's going on. 
And he references a strong man, and he, he's letting him know that, here, you got to catch this. Jesus is letting them know and us know he is here on this earth on a rescue operation. Do you catch what he's saying? The world has fallen under the influence of Satan. He has come directly into Satan's house in order to bind him, rescue those who are being deceived, held captive, and oppressed by demonic influence. He's saying the strong man is Satan. And I'm here to bind him, and I'm here to enter his house and set things straight in this world. In our CBR journal reading this past week, we read about Peter saying that we were eyewitnesses to this. He said how he, Jesus, went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. That is why Jesus says in a parallel passage, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I am here, he says, to bind that strong man. His name is Satan. And I'm here on a rescue operation to rescue those who are being held captive by him in his kingdom of darkness. Binding a strong man takes power. Jesus is letting them know that he is demonstrating the power of the kingdom of God. The power that casts out demons. The power that heals diseases. The power that raises the dead. And the power that forgives sin and transforms sinful hearts. We, if you are, are the part of the body of Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus, guess what? We are to be the same demonstration that Christ was of the power of God. We're to be on the same mission of Jesus because this world and this culture is on a bad place being held captive by Satan himself. We're on that same rescue operation. We don't have the power in ourselves, but Jesus says, I will give you the power you need. Go, therefore, as my representatives into this world on the same rescue operation that I am on myself. Go into the world and rescue those who are in darkness who need rescuing. Let that power work through us. We're to be on the same mission as Jesus was. And as he binds a strong man, we go in and say, we're going to take over by the power of God, the Holy Spirit of God, working in people's lives and hearts are changed. See, but the scribes, they were resisting that power. They were resisting it so much that Jesus warns them of committing what is commonly called the unforgivable sin. Now look at 28. He says, truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, this is probably one of the most misused misinterpreted passages in the Bible, what is commonly called the unforgivable or unpardonable sin. So what is this sin? I will tell you this, it's not any particular one sin that we've committed in our hearts and lives. It's not the fact that you might, have you ever thought about this? Well, I might die and have a sin that I hadn't confessed. You go through this worry story, Jesus says, it's about your heart, I got you. The blasphemy, the Holy Spirit is not about one particular thing. It's not about as many people would have, have been told in culture, it's suicide. It's not suicide. It is a condition and a, a role of the heart, what he's talking about. The unforgivable sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's a heart condition. Let me explain why. Now, while I truly believe it's true, there's a lot of debate on how to define this. Debate, defining that blasphemy. But here it goes. Scripture does not give a definitive definition but it does give a clear description. This blasphemy of the Holy Spirit dealing with the heart issue within us is first, there is a persistent 
rejection of the gospel. Did you catch the words? A very persistent, ongoing rejection of the gospel. One scholar has said this, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not simply saying something bad about the Holy Spirit. Not this one and done kind of thing, deal, but it is a persistent rejection of the convicting work of the Spirit whose job is to expose our sin and lead us to accept Christ. I think it goes much deeper than just simple unbelief. You know, if we die in unbelief, death is sealed our eternal fate, and there's no turning back. But we have a high priest who died in our place on the cross for our sin that went through the grave and now ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's taking care of that. But it's something that happens right here in life while we're still alive on this earth that will seal our fate. And I think that what Jesus is saying and warning the scribes about is because it's because they're not just rejecting who he is. The scribes are saying that the work of the Holy Spirit through him is actually the work of Satan. You see, there is a progression from rejection of the gospel. There is this rejection. Then secondly is this. There is a flagrant, key word, flagrant contempt for God's work. Not just something said in passing, but a much deeper condition of the heart. Jesus is saying it is possible for a person to get to the point where they clearly understand, but pridefully deny the truth. There's a story I heard a long time ago about a little boy. His mom, his mom and dad told him that he got in trouble. He got spanked. They said, sit in that chair. They set him down. He popped right back up again. They said, sit down. He sat down. He popped right back up again. Did it three or four times. And finally, he just sat there. They said, what's wrong with you? He said, I might be sitting down right here, but I'm standing up on the inside. That's us. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in the second level, the flagrant contempt for God's work. It's like, I'm standing my ground. I hear it. I've heard it. But I'm not responding. Before long, it gets set. The only way I can really describe this, it's become so offensive and mocking towards God that God withdraws eventually convicting the Holy Spirit. And God knows when that happens. We don't. A great way to think about this would be wet concrete. When you're a child, young, maybe you as an adult do this, I don't know, but when you're pouring concrete somewhere, what do you want to do? You want to write your initials, put your handprints in there, so say, in generations to come, they will know that I was here on this spot this day when this concrete was poured. Here it is. You know what I mean? But you got to catch it at the right moment. you got to catch it at the right time to be able to put your imprint into that concrete. It's got to be moldable. It's got to be wet enough to receive the imprint. Then when it dries, the imprint is permanent. Right? In Guatemala, when we go on our mission trips, we work on concrete. They don't have cement mixers. You have five or six shovels. Here comes the gravel. Here comes the sand. Here comes the water. Here comes the concrete mix. It gets poured in the middle, and you make this little uh, volcano-type place, and you walk in a circle, just shoveling, just walking. As you about just die, it's like, oh, my gosh. And they keep pouring water. Keep pouring, and if it starts setting up, put more water on it until it's ready to be used. But you keep it moldable and pliable enough to put it where it needs to go. There's probably many of our initials on those places over there where we poured concrete because, like, I wore myself out and put my initials right here. I did this. It's got to be pliable. Then when it sets up, it's there forever. 
Here's where I think Jesus is going with this. Our lives must stay viable to receive his impact. If we push back, if we if we don't hit and we don't yield to it, we push back too long, what happens? It sets up. And Jesus comes along, but he doesn't take. We pushed it too far. That, I believe, is what Jesus is trying to talk to us about. Not receptive to the grace and mercy of God. God is a holy God. And in His holiness, God is patient, gracious, and willing to forgive. There comes a point in time, only God knows that time, that He will bring the full weight of final judgment on those who reject the gospel. When you understand the gospel, and yet you keep on intentionally resisting the Holy Spirit's work in your heart, and you intentionally belittle, the Holy Spirit's work in the world, sometimes God says, you've crossed the line. He looks at us and says, you've shut the door. I'm just simply locking it up. That's in the mind of God. It's normal for us to think, though, and I don't want to raise undue suspicion. Let me put this to rest. You hear that going, gosh, is that me? Is that my life? Because I struggle so much with doubt. Is that why it's so hard for me to believe all this? Is this happening because I've crossed the line and committed that unforgivable sin? Well, let me put you at rest. The fact that you would continue asking those questions is evidence that God is still working in your heart. The only question for the day and concern is this. Am I willing to put my trust in Jesus and receive his forgiveness? The warning is you don't keep resisting the Holy Spirit's work in your heart. Maybe you do have questions. But you can come to Jesus and still have questions. As long as you're alive, as there is breath in your lungs, you must be moving further towards God and not away from God. In many scenarios in life, I promise you if we waited for all the questions to be answered, it would never happen. Anybody who is married or has been married before, if you waited all your questions were answered, you'd have never said, I do at the altar. If I, in responding to Christ and his ministry calling my life, if I'd have said, Jesus, I need to know this and this and this and this before I respond, I'd still not be responding yet. But I responded 33 years ago. I responded with a ton of questions. But I knew in my heart God was calling and said, God, let's tackle these together. You must go to Jesus and say, Jesus, let's tackle these together. Respond in faith to him. As believers, we are not billboards of awesomeness and perfection. You know what we are? We are demonstrations of the perfect patience of Jesus. Evidence that He is merciful, gracious, and loving. Evidence that He desires for us to turn, repent, trust in Him, to enjoy relationship with Him, and to live the abundant life He came to provide. You know, passages like this that go against the culture and are really strong about God's judgment can be difficult to swallow. That's why Jesus gives us a warning and also a challenge. Now, there's a reason. Before we get to the challenge, there's a reason this passage is sandwiched between two passages about Jesus' family. When you read this passage, his family enters the scene when he's at the house. This scribe's scenario about the unforgivable sin of Satan's house, the strong man, all this, then his family's at the very end, 31 through 35. There's a reason why it's sandwiched between there, and here's why. Here's what's happening. 
Jesus' ministry has been stirring up a lot of controversy. Imagine that. He's been teaching things with authority that people have never heard before. He's violating the Sabbath laws. He's actually touching unclean lepers. I dare him. He is, he is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Who is he to do that? He's out there proclaiming forgiveness of sin to all kinds of people. And they're wondering, about what authority is he doing all this? The opposition is mounting as Jesus is traveling and doing ministries. It says earlier in Mark's gospel, they were conniving a way to kill him. With that in mind, that scenario, look at the beginning of the passage. Verse 21, it says this. When his family heard this, he's at the house and all these people with him, they set out to restrain him. Catch that phrase. They set out to restrain him because they said he's out of his mind. Southern culture will say he's crazy. He has lost his mind. We're going to restrain him because he has lost his mind. They come to the house because they're convicted of this. Now, we know in Mark 3.31 that the family we're speaking of is Mary and his brothers and his sisters, his siblings. Mary understood. You read it through the birth of Jesus. She understood Jesus was here as the Messiah. She understood a lot more than everybody else. But we also understand many of his brothers and sisters did not believe. James, his half-brother who wrote the letter of James, was not a believer after Jesus was gone. He came to faith later. Did not believe him when he was living in the house with him. Post after Jesus was gone, he believed. But they didn't believe. But here's what Mary and Jesus' siblings had in common. They all were concerned that Jesus had just taken things just a little too far. So here's the challenge. Resist the temptation to restrain Jesus. Resist it. Push back with everything you've got against this. They go to rescue him. They go to seize him to restrain him. They want to grab Jesus and help him out. They were looking to restrain Jesus, to rescue him from himself. In other words, they were saying, we need to do an intervention right here and right now because he's going in a bad direction. They wanted to prevent him from further damaging his reputation and further provoking the Jewish leaders and Roman officials. They wanted to keep him from potentially endangering himself. When you look at that, here's what I see. They were getting in the way. The shadow of the cross that shadows over every single verse in the gospel. They were in many ways interfering with Jesus making his way to the cross, to die in our place, their place, for all of our sins. But sadly, this is how we sometimes think about Jesus. We appreciate him. We'll be sometimes embarrassed by him in public. Or maybe not embarrassed, just feel like his word is just a little off. His word is a little behind the times and simply out of touch with culture. So we rise up. Let me speak up for Jesus. We try to restrain him. We try to rescue him from himself. We attempt to rescue Jesus and to save his reputation in the culture. We try to soften those hard edges so that Christianity does not lose its credibility. Now, it can be from pure motives in a sense. We don't want Jesus to appear as anti-intellectual, anti-science, unloving. But you've got to understand, there's a big difference between trying to represent Jesus and trying to rescue Jesus. We've got to work hard for people to see Jesus 
for who He really is. For who Jesus is in the Scriptures, who He is in our lives. What the Bible really says about Him. But trying to rescue Jesus takes it a step further than that to the power where we don't represent Jesus by clarifying His Word. We try to rescue Jesus by changing His Word. We need to be people who clarify, don't change. Following Jesus means you stand on His Word regardless of what people think. The parts they resonate with and the parts they reject. But how you stand in it is very critical. To follow Jesus means you stand on this inerrant, infallible, authoritative Word of God. But we also choose to stand in a Christ-like, loving, and humble way. The hard truth right here is you cannot be a passionate follower of Jesus without sometimes being misunderstood just like Jesus was. You're not going to protect your perfect reputation in the eyes of those who don't follow Jesus. It's going to get a little smeared at times. Not because you actually are, but just, you know, just you're going to be labeled a fanatic sometimes. Not that you actually are, but you know, sometimes I do admit sometimes we, we need to chill a little bit. But sometimes we get labeled that for wrong reasons. We they label us fanatic for being a passionate follower of Jesus. Sometimes let's walk through a couple of things. We have convictions of God's word. We stand those convictions in obedience. Basic obedience is sometimes labeled as legalism. Passionate worship is sometimes seen as emotionalism. Justice and mercy are often seen as liberalism. Orthodoxy is often seen as bigotry, but that is all part of bearing the cross of Christ. See, we're going to be misunderstood no matter what our intentions are as we seek to genuinely follow Jesus. In the middle of all this, we must resist the temptation to restrain Jesus. When you and I seriously follow Jesus, even some of the closest people around us will have the same concern that Jesus' family had for You might be a little more popular by trying to rescue Jesus, but I will promise you there is no power in that. Dead hearts do not come to life by our popularity or persuasion. Dead hearts come to life by the power of God. You might become more popular by shaving off the rough edges of the gospel. There's no power in that. When you and I, when we stand on the truth of God's Word, when you stand in the power of the Holy Spirit, and when you walk humbly in a Christ-like way with love in your heart and your life towards other people, guess what happens? Miracles take place by God working in you and through you and around you. You get to be a part of seeing God do miracles in the lives of people you're loving to do a ministry to in their lives. That's where it all comes from. Jesus does not need us to rescue him or restrain him. Jesus just needs us to make a decision. As I said a couple of weeks ago, C.S. Lewis had a very famous trilemma years ago. Basically saying you got three options. That trilemma. He said when you're confronted with Jesus, who He is, what He said, what He does, you're confronted with Him in your life, you have three options. He is either flat out liar, nothing true at all. He's a lunatic. But the Scriptures, he's out of his mind. Or, he is Lord. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. Three options, you're going to land somewhere. There is no neutral ground when it comes to that point. 
and landing, we must land on Lord because He proved Himself. When you land on Lord, it's like Jesus. I still got questions, but I'm coming. I still don't understand everything, but I'm coming. I'm acting in, in faith. Liar, lunatic, and liar. Christ does not need to be restrained. We must not resist to the point of no return. We must respond when God prompts. Questions. Have you been resisting Jesus? Have you been trying to rescue or restrain Jesus with others around you? He doesn't need to be rescued or restrained. He's asking you to stop resisting. He is who He says He is. And He can and will do what He says He can and will do. I want to challenge you to hear from God's Word His warning and invitation. Don't resist Him to the point of no return. Respond to Him. Don't try to rescue or restrain Him. Let Him loose in your life. Let Him have domain where you live, work, and use you for His glory. You might see miraculous things take place. Where are you with this? Where are you landing with this? Where are you coming from? Please answer these questions as we would sing in worship. Singing about Jesus, God's amazing grace. Flowing down to us, covering us. Respond in gratitude. Respond to His grace and His mercy in your life today. Let Him be the Lord of your life that He needs and desperately wants to be. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask as we stand and we sing a song of worship to You, enlighten our hearts about this grace, this amazing grace that comes down and flows over us, that allows us to make a decision to follow you that gives us the privilege of following you that gives us the honor of being used in your world to be on the same rescue mission that you came on to continue that mission to rescue those who are trapped in bondage to Satan himself to be used by you through your power working through us that we would see miracles happen and people set free by the gospel, by your work on the cross for every person. God, have your way in our hearts, we pray. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Summit Community Church, please check out our website at summitchurch.me or on social media on Facebook or Instagram at SCC Morganton.